Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy? Be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, read verses 8 through 10. As we talked last week and actually the week before that, we saw that Moses laid three foundations for our obedience to the law of God. One, God is our sovereign king. This is in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. He's sovereign over all of his creation. He's the Almighty Yahweh, the I Am. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. He owns all of us. That's why one of the reasons why we obey Him because He owns us. He owns everything. But the second reason that Moses gave us in the preamble to the Ten Commandments is that He is our God. Remember, the pronouns are important. He's our God. He has covenanted Himself to us and adopted us and draws us thus to our obedience. And thirdly, He reminds the Israelites in us that He's delivered us from slavery. He's redeemed us. He's our Redeemer. He's brought them out of slavery to Egypt and He did that before He gave them the law. So they were to obey Him out of love and gratitude. Last week we also talked about some rules of interpretation as we look at the Ten Commandments that have guided uh, godly men throughout the ages. First, that the law is spiritual. It's not just not doing something physically. In other words, the second commandment is more than not bowing down to a statue. It's spiritual. It applies to every part of us. There's no idolatry in any part of us. Secondly, that every commandment is two-sided. It cuts both ways, positive and negatively. Every commandment has positive and negative implications. Thirdly, that the Ten Commandments express God's created order in Genesis 1. A number of the commandments refer directly to creation. This is the way things should be. And of course, the law of God is written on the heart of every man. Everyone knows in some way that these things are right. Fourthly, the specific commands reveal broad principles for knowing and loving God. We'll see that especially in the second commandment. This specific commandment reveals broadly more about knowing and loving God than, than we might think. And fifthly, that the context for all the commandments is love. God gave us the commandments because He loves us. We're a special people. So last week we talked specifically about the first commandment. Just very quickly review Nothing in our lives can come before God. Satan is a sneaky devil. And he's trying to wiggle his way into our hearts and convince us that our false gods really aren't really that big of gods. They're not really gods. So we, like Judas Iscariot, can come to him and say, Lord, is, is it I? Our hearts are so deceitful. We're often spiritually delusional. So we must carefully examine ourselves to see if we really love God above everything else. And this is not a one-time deal because your hearts are constantly generating new things for you to worship. What are you thinking about most of the time? What are you most working and striving for to keep or to improve? These thoughts help us reveal what we worship. But the first commandment clearly tells us that nothing in our lives can come before God. Nothing. So the first commandment, we've learned who is the only one to be worshipped. But now in the second commandment, we turn to the means by which He is to be worshipped. 
This is Deuteronomy 5, verses 8 through 10. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's holy and inspired word? It's here for you this evening because of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray once again. Lord, it is with fear and trembling that we come before You now and think about Your Word, especially these commandments that You have given us, Your people. We pray that we would handle Your Word well. That we would receive this Word with humility and practice it in our lives. Lord, open our eyes to truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So this is the second commandment. Let me just uh, briefly note that uh, we've alluded to this a little bit already. Not all of Christendom believes that this is the second commandment. I'm going to prove to you why uh, I think we know that it is the second commandment. Roman Catholics, and I actually learned this this week, Lutherans also combined the first and second commandments. And then they split up the tenth commandment into coveting your neighbor's wife and then coveting your neighbor's house and everything else. And this is an artificial split. It, it, not only does it not make sense, but there are reasons that we can go through textually and show that that just is not right. The first and second commandments as we see them actually... Both have a command and an explanation. That's one of the things that you see in all the commandments. A command and an explanation. The first one has it. The second one has it. Verses 8-10 through 10 are like that as 5-7 through 7 is that way as well. And they describe different commands. They're not variations of the same command. But the, I think the, the textual reason why we see this as a as two separate commands, is because if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and look at Exodus chapter 20, the tenth commands are actually different. Look at Exodus 20 with me as well. Just keep your finger on Deuteronomy 5. So Exodus 20 verse 17, which the Roman Catholics and Lutherans divide into two commandments, in verse 17 in Exodus 20, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, then your neighbor's wife. But then if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his house or everything else. So it seems that verses 21 through well, verse 21 in chapter 5 is really just repeating the same commandment. The 10th commandment of Exodus chapter 20. And if 
Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 really show the Tenth Commandment as being two different commandments, 9 and 10, then it seems in Exodus 20, not coveting your neighbor's house is number 9, and in Deuteronomy, not coveting your neighbor's wife is number 9. It just doesn't make any sense. So you can have confidence that we know that the Ten Commandments are the way we think they are. And this is the second commandment. It's a different commandment. The first commandment deals with our object of worship, that being God. The second, our manner of worship, how we come to God. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, these commandments are all well and good. I know that God wrote them with His own finger. I want to obey the commandments too. But I don't have any idols. You need to know that this is not about something on the periphery of your life. The second commandment as well as the first commandment, it's all about worship. It's what we're doing tonight. It's all about worship. And it affects you every day. Especially when we come to corporate worship. So with the second commandment, I'm just briefly going to... Well, there's three things I'm going to do. I'm going to explain the text the best I can. I'm going to show you the doctrine that we see in the text. And then we'll apply the text with the help of our catechisms. So let's look at the text one more time. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, let's look at what Moses is telling us, what God is telling us in this command. When you think of the text, we need to see, I think, three things that God is telling us how to think about Himself, how to think about God, how to worship God, and then how important it is that we get it right. The first word in verse 8 is you. Now, as, as Southerners, we know that you can mean you, singular, or you, plural, and sometimes we say y'all, but this is not a y'all. This is a you, singular. This is a personal word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Certainly God is speaking to the nation of Israel, so He can say you, Israel. But He's also speaking to each person who would serve Him. Each person in the world. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. A carved image or a graven image. In the Hebrew, this always, this word always refers to an image of a deity. The idols may be called gods, but they were always only seen as an image representing the actual God. So they're bowing down and praying to the idol, let's say, but they know that that idol is just a representation of the God that they represent. But God revealed Himself without an image, didn't He? We see a fire on a mountain. We see a cloud and fire above the tabernacle. We hear that Abraham is, is seeing a smoking fire pot going between the pieces of animals when God covenanted with him. In other words, he doesn't want any images to be used in his worship. Not only are we not to worship idols, but we're not to use images that would, would, would image God in any way. 
His worship would contain nothing derived from man's own imagination. Nothing. Why? Why does God hate images, graven images of Himself? Well, first of all, they're gross distortions of His infinite holiness. They must be. They're they're kind of subtle attempts to control God, to contain Him, to contain the limitless and uncontainable God. Well, the second commandment is this particular verse would show us is actually divided into two parts. Look, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness, so you don't make it. But then in verse 9, you shall not bow down to it or serve it. So we don't make idols or graven images or the likeness of anything using for worship, but we also don't worship or serve God by means of these images. John Calvin writes, this combination rules out making an image of someone regarded as divine, i.e. Jesus, even if one claims not to use it for worship. And it forbids bowing before the image or praying toward it, even if one claims it is not a representation of a divine being. Even if it's not supposed to be Jesus. We can't make images or use them for worship in any way. And remember, while God is giving the commandments to Moses on the mountain, what's Israel doing? Building an image and worshiping it. God speaking to Moses out of fire, and the Israelites are casting their gold, Aaron's casting their gold into the fire, and out comes a golden calf, he says. He made a calf. Exodus 32, verse 4. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You say, well, they they just made new gods. Actually, no. These were Yahweh in their minds. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. The calf was not seen as God, but a representation of God. But God is spirit. He's not contained by any image, especially not of a calf. He spoke out of fire. God's alternative to any kind of image, any kind of idol, is His Word. His spoken Word, His revealed Word, and the Word that lived among us. We worship not by means of images or created things, but by His Word. And this is not just something that's in the Old Testament. This is, this is for, for the New Testament church as well. Romans 1, Paul explains that a refusal to worship the holy God in the way He instructed was the downfall of mankind. Romans 1. Let's actually turn there together. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 1? Remember, Romans 1 is talking about the depravity of man and how man actually came to hate God. And he's talking about the sin and then the sin that grows and grows and grows. And now, of course, no one is righteous. And he's making this point. Let's begin in verse 21. Let's begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their own righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be God, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring their bodies. And it goes on and on and on. All the depravity of man seems to have begun in part by refusal to worship God in the way that He instructed them. Old Puritan William Perkins, he said, you may think that your use of idols, and I would insert images or pictures or statues or movies about Jesus, kindles in you a love of me. But it is so far from that that all such uses them, all such as use them hates me. Why could Perkins be so adamant that using anything else for worship is a hatred of God? Well, it's because God gives us very clear reasons why we should not do that. He says in verse 9, For I am a jealous God. Jealousy is a word that's it's tough for humans to kind of work through theologically. He's not talking about this, this kind of spiteful jealousy that we have as human beings, although there is kind of a good jealousy that we have. The jealousy you have for a very intimate relationship with your husband or your wife. And that's the relationship that God is drawing on metaphorically to show us this jealousy, this holy jealousy, and, and kind of what that looks like. He's relating his relationship to his people to a marriage, as we see in Hosea, the whole book of Hosea. He's jealous not only for his own glory, but he's also jealous for his bride. He is the most worthy of worship and glory, the ultimate perfection of perfections, that to worship anything else is abhorrent, and he's jealous. And when his own chosen beloved bride worships other things, the first commandment, or chooses to determine their own means of worship, the second commandment, he's offended. And like all sin, it is infinitely magnified by his holiness. In that sense, there's no little sin. Every sin is magnified because of God's infinite holiness. And yet we know that these sins directly opposed to God's glory are all the more grievous. So that's why God says He's jealous. This is a possessive, a possessive worship of service that belongs to Him. He owns us. And He's jealous for right worship and right service. It belongs to Him alone. You know, if someone spends way too much time with your husband or your wife, you begin to feel something inside you that just makes you a little bit angry. It's, that's just a shadow of that, that godly jealousy that he has for his church. Paul uses this same kind of phrase in 2 Corinthians 11 describing the church. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. 
Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy. Notice those words, a divine jealousy for you. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul's using the same metaphor that God uses. And why would he do that? Well, think, think about our salvation. Think of this divine jealousy in light of the relationship for just a moment. Imagine God, the holy God, the almighty God. And he looks down and he sees a sinful people. Worthy of nothing. Nothing but wrath. And he chooses some of those people for himself and he brings them to himself. Out of a world of rebellion. Out of a dark world, he, he chooses some for his own son. He gives them to his beloved son. He brings them from the slums of the world to the mansions of glory. He takes them from the courtroom of God's judgment and brings them into the living room of His family. And then how jealous would God be if we decide to despise that work and do things our own way? To have any kind of idolatry in our lives that is not dealt with. The love that the Father has for the Son is applied to His own adopted children. And these children are so unworthy of any of it, and yet they still despise Him. And they choose to worship in their own way or their own gods, their own things. Yes, He's jealous when we're whoring after other gods or coming to Him in our own way, out of our own wills. And that's why this commandment comes with a blessing and a curse. Look at verse 9. We see that there's judgment on those who disobey. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So he's not saying the children are going to be punished for the sins of their father, but he's acknowledging that if the children continue to hate God, then they will also be punished in the same way. And he's contrasting his judgment with his mercy, showing the blessing of those who love him. Those who obey their fathers as their fathers did, will be blessed beyond their own imaginations. It's more blessing than they can comprehend. What he's really doing is showing the contrast between the three and four generations and the thousand generations. We're to see the contrast in God's wrath and His mercy. His wrath is perfectly right and appropriate. His mercy is amazingly overabundant, more than we can ever ask or imagine. But we still strive to worship God the right way and the right means. So that's the text the best I can explain it in this short time. Let's look at the doctrine that we see in the text. I'm going to draw off two of the rules of interpretation that we went over already. First, that the law is spiritual. It applies to every part of man. We'll see this over and over. We'll also see that there are broad principles for knowing and loving God that are revealed in these specific commandments. Ultimately, what we take from this is that God's Word is the guiding light for all of our thoughts about God and His worship. God's Word. Not our own imaginations, not what we think would work best, not how we could reach people better. God's Word. And God's Word controls our worship of Him. In Deuteronomy 12.32, which is one of the, the parts of Deuteronomy that's talking about the second and probably the third commandment as well. He gives us what we now refer to as the regulative principle. This is Deuteronomy 12.32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. And you shall not add or take away from it. So when you reject this principle, you're rejecting part of God's Word. Indeed, I believe you're denying God. So let's look at that 
in light of the second commandment. First of all, we see that to worship God in a way that God hasn't ordained in His Word is a denial of three things, I think. It's a denial of His own spirituality. We read in John 4 a few weeks ago that God is to be worshipped what in spirit and in truth. God is not in one place. He's not like these local deities of the Old Testament. He's everywhere. And God is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We don't worship God by means of rosary beads or crucifixes. or There's no special places. There's no holy places. There's no holy water. There's no holy wine. No holy people. No holy rings that you have to kiss. No holy relics. No pictures or statues or anything. These things all limit, are, are seeking to limit and control the holy God and His worship. Secondly, we also see that this is a denial of God's own sovereignty. When we use images or, or anything else besides what He's given us in His Word to worship. It's a denial of His sovereignty. He's told us exactly what to do. It's like the six days of creation. They seem pretty clear once you see them. But for those who reject them, they're very unclear. The Ten Commandments seem very clear to those who see them and receive them. God is sovereign. He cannot be captured in an image or a figure or a person. He alone is the object of worship. That's it. We see in the Old Testament that the Jews did not understand this at some times in their history. In 1 Samuel 4, verse 7, remember the Philistines were about to attack them, and what did they do? They said, let's take the ark to the battlefield. Because then God will be there on the battlefield fighting for us. They thought the ark actually contained God. Oh, were they mistaken. Thirdly, we see that to use any kind of images or helps to worship God is a denial of His own majesty. He cannot be seen in any way, in any purse or place or thing. You don't look at something and go, oh, that's God. That looks just like God. There's nothing on earth that we see that relates exclusively to His own glory in such a way that we can worship it. Or even help us in our worship. It's absurd. Saying that the heavens and the creation declare the glory of God is different from saying, I need to go worship in light of the heavens and the earth. No, we don't do that. We worship God the way He's told us. Isaiah 44. The prophets, again, this is one of the things when you are reading through the prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, any of the prophets, what are they doing? They're calling the people back to the commandments. The covenant commandments. That's what they're doing. They come back to the first three or four commandments over and over and over again. Well, hear that. Uh, hear that in verse or chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And besides me there is no God who is like me. Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare it and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. I've, have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not of any. 
and all who fashion idols are nothing. So just because you don't have an idol doesn't mean that there isn't idolatry in your heart. Idolatry has always been a thing of the heart. We discussed this in Sunday school this morning in Exodus or Ezekiel 14. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of iniquity before their faces. So there's two ways to break this commandment, it seems. To worship the idols. We don't come and bow down to an image or likeness of anything as part of our worship. We don't make them. We don't bow down to them. We don't use them. But also then, to worship God by any other means. Whether it's in our hearts, or whether it's part of a worship service, or whether it's part of our own family worship. We come to Him in the way that He has ordained. We come to God in the ways that He's determined. So let's apply these the Scripture, the text, and the doctrine to our lives. I think one of the most comprehensive places to go is the larger Catechism 108 and 109. And I'll read them to you. And we'll just spend a few moments talking about them. What are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in His Word. So we receive it, observe it, and keep it pure and entire. Everything He's given us in His Word regarding worship. And then they tell us what that is. Prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. Reading and preaching and hearing of the Word. The administration and receiving of the sacraments. Church government and discipline. The ministry and maintenance thereof. Religious fasting swearing in the name of God and vowing unto Him. And also the disapproving and detesting and opposing of all false worship. And according to each one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. So when they say all such religious worship that, that we are to sustain or maintain, sorry, keeping pure and entire, all such religious worship. That word worship in the Hebrew is actually the same word as serve. All such religious service or worship. Uh, the Hebrew word means to bow down or to stoop or to make obedience or do reverence. It's accompanied by a devotion of the heart. Moorcroft says the Hebrew words for worship denote the service rendered by a willing slave bowing down before his master whom he cherishes. Who should we worship? God alone. What does that look like? It's every day. It's giving everything to God every day in the way that He's told us. Romans 12, Paul tells us that we are because of the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God which is your spiritual worship. It's a totally self-offering of spiritual worship to God. It's humble and total submission to God. This is the heart of worship. The problem is we can't do it. We're living sacrifices. It's impossible for us. We can't even get better at it apart from the Spirit. And if you have a desire to worship God well, that's the gift of the Spirit. 
pray that He continues to give you that desire because He will give you the ability as well. There's one object of worship and it's the one true God. And we come to worship Him in any other way, it's idolatry. So let's look at the sins forbidden in the second commandment. Question 109, all devising and counseling and commanding and using, any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God Himself. It's tolerating false religion. It's making any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, inwardly in our minds, outwardly any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it, or God in it, or by it. In other words, we don't use any images at all. The making of representation of feigned deities, of not actual gods, of other gods, and worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented or taking of ourselves, received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity or custom or devotion or good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Mary Kay and I were actually in a church. We went to a PCA church in a large city somewhere in the south. And we sat down in the worship service. We were so excited. And right behind the pulpit, there was this giant stained glass of Jesus. And I just thought, oh, goodness. Well, it wasn't always a PCA church. It was another denomination before that, which obviously saw the the commandments very differently. But we almost couldn't pay attention because we saw this idolatry right behind the pulpit. And I wrote them a letter. I was trying to be a good brother. I just wrote the pastor personally. I said, I really struggled with this worship. I see it as a, a breaking of the second commandment. You know your church. You know your stuff. But I think it's wrong. I would ask you to consider with the elders to change it. Apparently, I'm not the only person who's brought this up. They refused to do it because it's an old historic building and it's been received out of a a good heart. And God's forgiven us for not changing this thing. There's nothing in our lives that's worth breaking a commandment. Knowingly doing it. Simony, which is the sale of our worship. Sacrilege, which is robbing God, the sovereign God, of all the things that He owns, which is our worship. Neglect, contempt. I'm continuing with 109's answer. All neglect and contempt and hindering and opposing the worship with ordinances that God has. Opposing the worship of God and ordinances which God has appointed. And the reasons that are annexed to this commandment In question 110, it says many things, but it says, I think most poignantly to me, that God is sovereign over us in His propriety in us, in His fervent zeal for His own worship, and His revengeful indignation. These are all the reasons why we should be careful. He owns us. He has saved us. He has zeal for His own worship. And He's full of indignation against false worship as being a spiritual whoredom. So we come to worship and we desire to do this well. We love God. We don't want to worship in any way that would break a commandment, certainly. 
And I trust that God will give the session in the years to come the wisdom to do this well. I'm not claiming that we all understand everything perfectly. That is not what we're saying. I'm not claiming that we have some prideful way to look at other people who worship differently. That's not what I'm saying either. I'm saying that when we come to worship, we need to be aware of the commandment and follow, faithfully follow and obey God in love as much as we possibly can. So let's just look at a few quick examples where we could be challenged today in the worship of God. First of all, we are committed to worshiping God in faith, in spirit, and in truth. Without any fanfare, we worship God with obedience, as much obedience as we can possibly understand and execute. We try not to add anything to the understanding of God or enhance His holiness in any way by adding things to worship that's not prescribed in His Word. That's what we're trying to do when we come to corporate worship. Idolatry is about the worshiping with visible things, but we worship God in spirit and in truth. Ames, old Puritan, wrote this, Worship through man-made ceremonies is closely connected to idolatry. Remember, they had just recently come out of the Roman Catholic Church as well. Worship through man-made ceremonies is closely connected to idolatry for such ceremonies attach sacred value to material objects, whether holy garments or water or wine or containers or future or buildings that God has not consecrated by His Word to be a means of grace, and man has no power to make them such. So we don't worship what we see. We worship what we hear in His Word. We worship the Almighty God. So, worshiping God may not include at Meadow Creek or most Presbyterian churches a gigantic multimedia presentation with, with smoke and, and fireworks. It may not include 30 minutes of entertainment. You may not have your pastor in snazzy clothing with, I don't know, a soul patch or something. But the liturgy of the church will bring us to worship through His Word with simplicity and faith in God. That's our goal to worship the Holy God with reverence, with joy, but as He's told us in His Word. One thing that has always been a problem for the Reformed for the reformed church and really for the church throughout the ages is breaking the commandment, actually breaking it using pictures, using idols, using all kinds of things that would aid us in our understanding of God or worship. The worship of Jesus Christ is a joyful duty of our faith. John Murray wrote a helpful pamphlet called Pictures of Christ. He says we should approach His worship with the same reverence and awe as the Father. His majesty demands it. And we should never dishonor Him. The representation of Him would necessarily have to be worshipful because it's Almighty God that you're representing in a picture. It cannot be anything but worshipful. The point of the image is to bring your human mind to think of the actual thing. So when it's a flower, when you see a picture of a flower, you think, oh, that's a rose. I remember what roses smell like. That's beautiful. I love roses. Or when you see a picture of a family member, maybe a family member who's passed away or someone who's far away. That picture of that person brings you to remember that person. It brings you to a remembrance of who he is or who she is. 
And so any image of Jesus is designed to lift our minds to some understanding of Jesus, to some lesson or insight about Him. And because it's an image of God, the Almighty God, it must be worshipful. So we don't do it. And Murray also makes this point, which I had not considered. A use of any image of Jesus Christ places a Christian in a moral dilemma. So people who say, yeah, I watch The Chosen. I love it. It lifts me up and it helps me understand more about God. Well, here's your dilemma. Either you think of Christ without worshiping Him, and that dishonors God, or you worship the Lord through an image, which is idolatry. You see, you can't have either one. Other points he makes that I think are helpful is that we have no idea what Jesus looked like. Nothing in the Old Testament or New Testament tells us anything except He's plain. Any depiction is pure imagination and must be inaccurate. And in plus, it's a gross reduction of His actual glory, which we've already mentioned. We don't use images of Christ in any way. This is a violation of the second commandment. That's the bottom line. We don't do it. He writes, what's at stake? This is Murray. What is at stake is the unique place that Jesus as the God-man occupies in our faith and worship. The incarnate Word and the written Word are correlative. We dare not use other media of impression or sentiment, but those of His institution and prescription. Every thought and impression of Him should evoke worship. We worship Him with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God. To use a likeness of Christ as an aid to worship is forbidden by the second commandment. Let me just conclude by saying, remember that this, this, like all the commandments, is in the context of love. Brothers and sisters, it's all in the context of love. Yes, we should obey. He's Almighty God. He's told us what to do. We must obey. Over the past month or six weeks, I guess, I've been praying, of course, for a revival in my own heart. I'm always praying for God to awaken my soul to a greater understanding of God and who He is and for the Holy Spirit to empower me to do His work. And I have seen some kind of revival in my own personal worship over the past few months. And I was meditating and thanking God about that. I'm just wondering, Lord, what is it? What, what has changed? I've been praying for so long. Certainly on the one hand, God is just answering my prayers. But I realized on the other hand that I've been meditating on and studying the law of God, the Ten Commandments, for weeks and weeks. And it's crazy. You wouldn't think that studying the law of God would somehow inspire you to worship Him well. Not that I worship Him well, but better. What's going on here? You see, our focus on learning the law actually enables us to love God well. Because these are the things God cares about. He loves His law. He's given us His law. He's given us the moral law to instruct us how to love Him. And I think that's part of what's happening in my own soul is I'm, I'm loving God and I'm loving His law in a way that I did not before. And praise God for that. And I hope the same thing is happening in your own soul. We're not justified by the law. But we're also under obligation to obey the law as God's people. Because it pleases our God. Martin Luther said, if I fail for one day to meditate on the law, I notice a decline in my godly affections. That's what I've noticed as well in my own life. 
Why? Because it's a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. It brings us to Christ again and again and again. If you love your father well, you're going to love his law and it's going to bring you right back to Christ and the gospel. So we want to love and worship him in the way that he's told us and no more. That's the second commandment. Let me close with 1 John 5 verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You once again for giving us Your Word, for bringing us to a place where we can study Your Word in freedom Lord, we have the, the freedom to speak and act according to Your Word without any fear of repercussions or imprisonment as so many people around the world are facing today. Lord, we can speak it plainly and declare boldly that we will worship the only God and worship only in the way that You have instructed us. We will not worship other gods. We will not worship Buddha. We will not worship Allah. We will not worship the Hindu gods. We will not worship any other false god we will worship the one true God in the way that You have shown us. Lord, that is our heart's desire, but we pray that You enliven our spirits to accomplish this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me and let's sing.